Hello, and welcome to PwC's Accounting and Reporting podcast series. Our mission is to inform and educate accountants and other stakeholders on today's most important accounting issues. I'm Heather Horn, a partner in our national office, and let's get started. In today's episode, we're going back to the basics on the accounting for inventory. Even as we move to a more virtual economy, many companies continue to hold inventory, and in fact, inventory is the most frequently searched word on our CFO Direct website. For today's discussion, I'm happy to welcome back to the studio Pat Durbin, the leader of the Revenue and Liabilities team in PwC's national office and a regular guest on our podcast series. Pat, welcome back to the studio. Thanks for joining me today. Today's topic is one that is actually one of our most searched terms on our CFO Direct website, and that's inventory. So obviously a lot of questions out there about inventory, and I think this is another sort of one of our back to the basics episodes, because inventory guidance has generally been around there for a while. So, but before we actually jump into the details, can you just start us off by maybe talking about sort of where the guidance comes from and then some general principles? Yeah, I think when I was here a little while ago on the contingencies topic, we were talking about how old that one was. Frankly, a lot of the inventory guidance goes back to something we used to call ARB 43 from sort of the 1960s era. Now, it's been added to a little bit over the years, and the most recent was in sort of the mid-2000s. There was a, a FASB standard that provided a little bit more clarity around uh, inventory costs, but it's an oldie but goodie too, for sure. You know, when we think of inventory, it's, it's interesting that it's one of the most searched terms. I mean, lots of businesses have it. Certainly, it was very common before we had more of the virtual economy. Uh, but inventory is defined as tangible personal property that's held for sale in the ordinary course of business. So that's, a you'd think, typical finished goods. That's the thing that I make, and I'm going to sell it. Certainly, that's inventory. That's um, my widgets yeah. in our accounting examples. You might have inventory that's in process. So you're, you're fabricating a widget, um, but it's not done yet. So that's what we call work in process, or you might hear it referred to as WIP in some cases. And then you have the basic materials you've acquired to start with, um, and so we call those raw materials. So not overly uh, scientific there in the definitions, but that's really what inventory consists of. You may also from time to time see supplies considered as inventory, but those tend not to be as big. And one of the key tenets of inventory is it's really something you're holding for sale in the ordinary course of business. Okay. And then I guess for our listeners, I think ARB 43 is probably issued um, before all of our listeners or most of our listeners were born. Um, so that's Accounting Research Bulletin, correct? And I yes. think from a precursor to the FASB. That was that's issued, correct. From right? the old Accounting Principles Board. Yep. So. so definitely some old guidance. And then where can people go today if they're looking for this guidance? Before so it's been codified it? in uh, ASC 330 is the place for the inventory accounting guidance in the FASB's codification. Okay, great. So why don't we jump then into our second topic, which would be inventory costs. And maybe just start the threshold of what types of costs would qualify for capitalization and inventory into those different categories you know, we just talked about. Yeah, and so what we're really getting to is cost accounting, which for someone who grew up in uh, the Rust Belt is one of the sort of nearest and dearest topics to my, to my heart. And unlike a lot of areas of GAAP today, I mean, we really have just a few basic core principles around which we've kind of built some practice around cost accounting. So 
that makes it sort of interesting but also challenging at the same time because there's not a you know, real prescriptive uh, list to follow. Um, one of the things, and we'll, we'll come back to this a little bit later, but first question you have to ask yourself is which cost flow assumption am I going to use for my inventory? Probably a lot of people have heard the term FIFO or first in, first out, or LIFO, last in, first out. There's also some average cost techniques that are used in, in practice. Those are probably the three major ones. There are, there's a special technique that some retailers use where they do inventory accounting based off of their retail prices, but that's definitely not for today's uh, discussion. So. Yeah, my first client, I was testing Chainlink LIFO, which at that time I did not know what LIFO meant. So uh, that was another, I think, specialized variation here. So yeah, there's there's lots of great uh, accounting yes. uh, jargon in the in the LIFO space for sure. So, but the one thing I would say is, regardless of which cost flow assumption you're using, the composition of the costs that go into inventory are the same. Um, the only difference when we're talking about a cost flow assumption is sort of the timing of when those then are deemed to flow through as, as cost of sales when you, when you make a sale of the good. So what is inventory cost? The general principle for determining inventory cost is that it's the sum of all of the applicable expenditures and charges that you incur directly or indirectly, and that's where it gets even more interesting, that you incur in bringing an article of inventory to its existing condition and location, meaning getting it to the point that it's at, whether it's a finished good, whether it's work in process, whether it's raw materials, what cost did you incur to get it there? Those would be your inventoriable costs. The real question is around those costs that are more indirect, and so we'll probably come back to that topic. Yes, I have many questions, because you talked about cost accounting, and so then can you just give us some examples maybe of the types of costs that we would include and then the converse, some examples of costs that would not be included. Sure, and, and some are pretty obvious. I mean, for example, the cost of the materials you acquire from third parties. I mean, you paid cash, you acquired some goods, that's the cost of the good that would be included in inventory. Um, the direct cost of labor, you know, maybe it's a very basic operation. You buy a piece of material, you have a laborer who fabricates that into something else, while the direct cost of that person's time as they're working on the material should be added to the cost of, of inventory. And we typically include so wages and benefits. Now, obviously, you have multiple units of inventory going through, so you have to think about allocating that. But the general concept is they're working on the inventory. Their costs are included. Where it gets to be a little bit more interesting is when we start talking about things that we might refer to as overheads. And then you really have to think about which costs truly are allocable to inventory and then you also have to think about how do I allocate those costs to inventory because I can't usually associate them with one specific unit of inventory. So when we think about overheads in this context, we're really talking about sort of supervisory wages, but supervisory wages relative to the manufacturing operation, not all management salaries, if you will. Depreciation on machinery would be another good example. Um, you know, all the, all the goods that are going through the plant, they're using that machine. So how do I allocate the cost of the usage of the machine to the units? And then sometimes other incidental costs, so supplies that you use in the manufacturing process or quality assurance at the conclusion of the manufacturing process and so on. I wanted to ask you about cost allocation because I think 
probably one of the more complex parts of this. Mm -hmm. But before I get to that, actually something um, that occurred to me, you know, I've, I've had some recent podcasts where we've talked about the challenges of kind of applying some of these standards to business today. And when you were talking about sort of that person who's standing there fabricating um, and the idea of like an assembly line, things have changed quite a lot. Yep. And so I th I'm assuming then that goes to more challenge in figuring out what costs would be allocated to your inventory? Yeah, I mean, I guess if, if we think of, you know, process automation and now a lot of things are done by the machines with less human intervention, in some ways it just means the composition of your costs have shifted between the, the personnel, labor, and wage costs to presumably the investment you've made in that machinery and, and your equipment. And your depreciation. And your depreciation. Yeah. And so you're, um, what, what you're really getting at at that point is what's my allocation base and how do I think about the appropriate allocation base? You know, there's sort of a practical capacity of your facility and the cost you incur during a period should be able to produce or relate to that practical capacity. Now, you don't always achieve the practical capacity, so then do I still continue to capitalize all those costs against a smaller base of production? Or do I need to recognize that actually I was inefficient and some of those costs really need to be expensed in the period rather than added to inventory? And that was actually the project from sort of the mid-2000s. It um, was FAS 154 at the time. It's in AST 330. It talks about this concept of a normal level of, of production volume as a basis to allocate your overhead costs to, to inventory. And that's an area where... There's a lot of judgment involved. Gets to be very specific to the business. Do you have seasonal issues and those sorts of things? So, um, definitely a very entity-specific and sort of judgmental area. I think consistency is important when you get into that area. So, is this where the whole like standard costing and all of that comes? It, it could. I mean, we standard costing is very much a cost accounting technique. Officially, from a financial reporting perspective standard costing doesn't really exist. You know, the idea in financial reporting is you have the actual costs reflected on the balance sheet for the inventory. Standard costs are a technique to do some of these overhead allocations to analyze variances in production. So if you have a standard cost that's based on your normal production and you end up with unabsorbed overheads, that means that you didn't produce as much as your standards anticipated. And that's then when you have to consider, okay, well, I, do I need to allocate some of those variances, meaning add more cost to inventory, or does that represent inefficiency that really should be expensed as incurred? So, so it sounds like a topic for its whole own podcast. Sure, certainly is. So. so then, Pat, if I'm thinking about accounting changes, I know in particular from my own personal experience, LIFO can get very complicated, um, considering all the historical cost data and all the different calculations. And then, you know, given the recent change in the tax law with the rate reduction from 35 to 21%, also the inherent tax benefit from LIFO is less valuable. So are we seeing then more changes from LIFO to FIFO or LIFO to average cost? And then is there anything specific those companies should be thinking about? We are seeing that, I would say, more frequently probably than any other inventory accounting change question. For the reasons you described, I mean, it is uh, honestly fairly complicated to maintain an organization to do all the calculations necessary for LIFO, and that tends to be the impetus for a lot of companies to think about the change. 
Importantly, however, the preferability of an accounting change has to really be assessed from the impact on the financial statements. Just because it makes your life easier is not a justification for preferability, unfortunately. So, and it gets hard because the literature doesn't really express a preference for any particular inventory cost flow assumption. In theory, they're all equally valid assumptions. So it becomes hard then to really sort of put your finger on what it is that makes one preferable versus the other. What we often end up looking to is, well, what are most of the industry peers using? Because if you think of it from the user's perspective, they're going to have a much better ability to compare your results with those of your competitors if you're all using the same cost flow assumption. And so that tends to be where a lot of the preferability discussion uh, runs to. That's helpful, Pat. And I think for our listeners in general, thinking about accounting changes and accounting principle can be complex and definitely encourage you to check out chapter 30 of the financial statement presentation guide on that. So then Pat, let's move to the next topic. And I think this is one, again, where I know in practice can be sometimes a challenge, which would be the potential impairment or valuation of inventory. Um, so can you give us some background on that? Yeah, that's, that's right. So we've talked a lot about what costs go into inventory and how we think about cost flow assumption. And ultimately that drives what ends up on the balance sheet. But like any asset on the balance sheet, we have to be concerned about whether or not its value is recoverable. So for years, we referred to that in the inventory context as the lower of cost or market test or LCM test. A few years ago, the guidance, the principle was updated in theory to try to simplify the analysis to a concept now called lower of cost or net realizable value. So replacing the word market with the term net realizable value which was actually part of market, but it's just been tweaked a little bit. So probably more than we need to get into um, in this discussion, other than to observe that there has been a change, except for companies that are still using LIFO or the retail method that I mentioned, you're still in the lower cost or market camp, but everybody else is lower of cost or net realizable value. Okay, so then can you just clarify then what we mean when we say net realizable value? So like what's what how's that defined and sort yeah. of what's changed? So net realizable value is defined as the estimated selling price of the inventory in the ordinary course of business less any costs that you need to complete the inventory. So this would apply to work in process and raw materials as well and any cost to dispose of it. So if you're going to incur some direct costs of selling it, a commission or some transportation, for example, those would be re that would reduce the selling price. So that's sort of your net realizable value. Um, and you would compare that then to the costs you've accumulated on the balance sheet through your cost accounting process, your raw materials, your whip, your finished goods. And to the extent that your net realizable value is less than what you have on the balance sheet, you have a a need for a, a lower of cost and net realizable value provision or valuation allowance, however you want to think about it. So thank you for the explanation. And then this is though, I think where this question still is, whether we're talking about market or net realizable value, is that that means that if you have a difference between cost and net realizable value, then you have to take an impairment loss. So then, Pat, maybe before we wrap things up, can you just take us through what are the types of common questions that you're seeing in practice around inventory? Yes, yeah, so I think the one we tend to see some is what to do with vendor rebates. 
the guidance in ASC 330 on inventory costs doesn't really cover vendor rebates, and that's actually because the guidance is somewhere else. It's in a place around cost of sales in topic 705, which you could say, well, why'd you start with cost of sales? Because that usually means it was in inventory beforehand, but nevertheless, that's where, that's where the guidance is. Essentially, though, what that guidance tells you is a rebate from a vendor is consideration that you receive from a vendor, and the general guidance is that that becomes a reduction of the cost of whatever it is that you purchased from that vendor. So if you're purchasing inventory, it means it's a reduction of the cost of inventory. Um, when you sell that inventory, then that lower cost would end up manifesting itself as lower cost of sales, so you would ultimately get to the point that ASC 705 tells you, which is reported as a reduction of cost of sales, but while it's in inventory, it should also be reflected as a reduction of the cost of inventory. The tricky part is sort of how do I think about allocating the rebate to the inventory because sometimes it's not on a unit by unit basis. You know, there might be a volume discount that I'm entitled to, so I have to estimate am I going to obtain that discount, and so I'm effectively estimating the purchase price of my inventory rather than just treating the invoice price as the cost of my inventory. So. I mean, it's all an extension of the same concept. It just introduces a little bit of an additional complexity to it. So we, we see that some. The only real challenge there is when there's a question about, well, is there some other arrangement that I'm getting the cash for? Is there something besides just the purchase of the inventory? In which case, then you might have a different income stream. You, as the party receiving the cash, maybe you're doing something for your vendor in a separate transaction, in which case then it's not part of your inventory cost at all. It's part of that other transaction. So then I think, I guess the advice you're giving to people is don't always just take this at face value because they can be complicated. And I'm guessing, especially when they could extend over more than one period and then gets back into your whole question of cost allocation. Yeah, and I think the important thing is you have to think of it in the context of whatever the arrangement is. And many of these are longer term arrangements. So you need to think about how you allocate that rebate over the term of the arrangement, not just, oh, I earned the rebate, I got it this period, so I'm going to take the income in the period I got it. You really need to think about it in the context of the inventory procurement process. Okay, Pat, thank you. And very good insight, I think. Definitely can be a very complex area when you get into it, so it's helpful for our listeners, I think, to hear the general principles. Yes, and, and stay tuned because we, we do have a uh, forthcoming inventory guide coming out. So it has uh, a little bit more information on this very old accounting topic in case you're interested. Great. Looking forward to it. Thank you. To make sure you catch next week's episode, subscribe to our podcast series wherever you find your content. And we'd love to hear from you. So please leave us a review or reach out to me through CFOdirect.com. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.